Ah, there we are. Hello, that's why there. Hope you're well. Today I'm going to be talking about quite an important aspect of the work that I do. That's the relationship between the Welsh and Irish traditions and how best to treat them both, especially when we're trying to compare them. As I'm sure many of you appreciate, uh, a lot of the work that I do is essentially comparative mythology. I compare uh, medieval Welsh texts um, with other medieval Welsh texts and often with medieval Irish texts and sometimes with stories and texts from elsewhere in the world, particularly uh, within the Indo-European family uh, of cultures. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of the work is finding similarities between different stories. So, for example, last week uh, we discussed the similarities between the tale of Taliesin uh, and the story of Finn McCool. And we can see that there's clearly a similar concept involved in both stories, this idea of magical food or some type of magical elixir and how that motif is bound up with many other different ideas, such as death, uh, the transmission of special knowledge, the survival of memory from lifetime to lifetime as the soul reincarnates. So we can see that we can draw out these similarities, and in interpreting those similarities, we can make some assumptions about what the Celts may have believed in the past, or what the earlier Indo-Europeans may have believed and passed on to their later Celtic descendants in the Welsh and Irish tradition. But as well as there being similarities between the Welsh and Irish traditions, there are also, of course, differences. And sometimes it's important to point out these differences are as crucial as the similarities, because it's easy in the work of comparative mythology to overgeneralize, to simplify the similarities that we find to the point where we're ironing out all of the nuances that these distinct cultures uh, would have had. Now, a very, very good example of this is the whole notion of a Celtic otherworld. Patrick Sims Williams wrote a book maybe about 15 years ago now called Irish influence on medieval Welsh literature. And in that book, Patrick Sims-Williams talks about this oversimplification of the Celtic otherworld. This is how he put it. What is often reified, reified essentially means described or defined as being a real thing, so what is often reified as the Celtic otherworld is a good example of a concept that is sometimes projected back from Irish and Welsh texts onto ancient Celtic culture, without proper consideration being given to the differences between the two languages and therefore uh, the two concepts that both languages and cultures would have had about the other world. So we will often think of the Celtic otherworld as one thing, as one phenomena, one concept that all of the Celtic peoples shared at some point in the past. 
It's very easy, as Patrick Sims Williams describes there, for us to back project this concept of the Celtic otherworld onto that period and basing our understanding of what that could mean on perhaps an oversimplification of the Welsh and Irish texts. And Patrick Sims Williams goes on to explore in that chapter in particular of his book how the concepts of the Irish and the Welsh of the world are actually different. There are some basic similarities, but there are some fundamental differences also. He essentially believes that we have confused this notion of an other world with what the Celts believed because of the different classical and Christian influences that we have. So he goes on to say this, he says, our useful but probably misleading modern term other world seems to derive partly from unconscious analogy with the Christian dichotomy of this world, the other world. So part of our understanding of what the other world is, is essentially derived from Christianity. This notion that there is this world and then there is a heaven, another world, separate from this world. We leave this world and we go to the other world and special conditions have to be met before we can go to the other world, of course, within Christianity. So that's one part of our understanding of what the other world means. And then the other part, according to Sims Williams, is derived from a calc. A calc is essentially a word-for-word -word translation. So the modern term other world seems to derive partly from unconscious analogy with the Christian dichotomy of this world and the other world, and partly from a calc or a word-for-word -word translation on orbis alius. Orbis alius is essentially Latin for the other world or an other world. And Patrick Sims Williams believed that this influence originally stems from uh, a Roman poet called Lucan. Lucan's account of the Druidic doctrine that souls survive not in Hades, but Orbe Alio, in another world. So what we could be doing by defining a Celtic other world is essentially mixing up a Christian and classical concept of another separate world and what the Celts actually believed in. And if we look at the, the different other worlds in Welsh and Irish traditions, we might see that it's not necessarily an other world. It's not necessarily separate from this world in the meaning that it's difficult to get to. So if we look at the Irish tradition now, what was in Old Irish Seath and what's in contemporary Irish known as the She. These are, of course, the fairy mounds, the Neolithic passage graves, essentially, that we find all over Ireland, that the Tua de Danan retreated into after the current stock of humans turned up in Ireland, the Sons of Meal, yeah, the Milesians. According to the Levergavala, which is an old Irish manuscript that describes the different invasions of Ireland. So the Tua de Danan, which are semi-divine or a later version of earlier Iron Age gods in Ireland, when the humans turn up, these special divine beings retreat into the fairy mounds and they are sometimes also known as the She. In Old Irish, Seath. Now, this distinction between the Old, Old Irish and the Contemporary Irish is important because that Old Irish seethe 
is borrowed by medieval Welsh culture, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But this is usually what we mean by the Irish of the world. And Patrick Sims Williams goes on to describe where this term seethe comes from. He says it is preferable to derive seethe from sed, which is a hypothetical earlier Celtic word or syllable, which essentially translates as sit. It's quite likely that the English word sit also comes from this same, perhaps not Celtic, but at least Indo-European root. And we can compare Latin sedes, which is seat or abode. And in Roman culture, this later becomes temple or burial place. So seethe probably derives from the earlier Celtic sed and probably originally meant abode. Then was later specialised as abode of divinities. So not just where anyone could live, but specifically where gods or spirits or perhaps special ancestors lived and was finally restricted to their abode in Ireland, the tumulus or fairy mound. That's all pretty self-explanatory. There have been other theories in the past. Um, Rudolf Thurnison, who was an early Celtic scholar back in the 19th century, uh, he believed that uh, seethe was actually derived from what could be an earlier Indo-European word for stars or constellations. Now, that idea hasn't really taken off much, but it is interesting that there is an alternative etymology for seethe. It might not just mean abode or abode of divinities. It could also have originally meant something like star. Um, or constellations, which is interesting because, of course, these fairy mounds, these Neolithic tumuli, are often aligned with astronomical events, the moon and the sun usually, but perhaps also with stars. That's what the word originally meant in Ireland. And, of course, we can go on to look at how it's actually used in Irish culture in quite a famous and well-used quote from a short Irish text known as the taking of the hollow hill which was probably copied down around the 9th century here I'm using John Carey's translation it has this to say about what is found inside the seethe then Dagan Dagan is a, another name for uh, the Dagda for the good god then Dagan departed from the seethe and the Makok remained in his seethe Essentially, in this short story, the Makok tricks the Dagda and thereby kicks him out of uh, the seethe he's taken for himself and, in, and moves in. In the seethe, what we find is a, a wondrous land. There are three trees there perpetually bearing fruit and an ever-living pig on the hoof and a cooked pig and a vessel with excellent liquor and all of this never grows less. Very interesting. That's actually quite a normal description of the Irish of the world, what people find in the seas. We find similar descriptions in other stories, uh, stories associated with Mananan MacLear, for example. There's also the story of Finn McCool also, where there's this description of immortals or timeless beings and timeless spaces accessible or uh, residing within uh, these fairy mounds within the seethe. Thomas O'Rahilly, who was um, an Irish scholar, uh, had this to say, in pagan Ireland, every district of importance tended to have its own seethe 
or hill within which the other world was believed to be located. Now, his quote there really points out that every region, every locality, every tour, a territorial uh, unit uh, in Irish law, in medieval Irish law, each territorial unit would have had its own Neolithic tumuli, fairy mound, a seethe, that the locals believed what gave access to the other world. Patrick Sims Williams argues that each of these different tumuli gave access to a local, regional other world. Not one joined up kingdom, but a discrete regional other world that was appropriate to that territory, if you like. Now that's interesting because that suggests that the other world was an aspect of the locality. It wasn't an other world as in somewhere distant, uh, apart from us, that was difficult to get to, that we could only travel to after death, for example. That it was somewhere that pertained to the territory that we live in. Each region had its own other world or its own special spiritual dimension associated with it. Perhaps the immortal beings or the gods or the spirits resident in each of these tumuli was generally of a similar type and may even at some times have had the same names, for example, the Dagda or the Makok. But ultimately, these were discrete, separate otherworld realms that weren't necessarily joined up. In the story of Finn McCool, for example, we hear how Finn McCool is sitting out on Sawain between two tumuli and the fairy mounds, the seas, they open uh, at Sawain. Uh, and that's an opportunity for the residents of one seath, of one tumuli, to cross over to the other seath. So they're not joined up in the background somehow. They have to wait until Sawain until they can visit each other. That's one description of the Irish other world, which isn't necessarily an actual other world, more like uh, special spiritual spaces that are somehow special to the different regions that these seeds are located in. Now, of course, in Wales, we have a slightly different concept of the other world. The other world is often referred to as Anoven, Anoven. Uh, I've tried to render it in a simple English spelling there, Anuvan. An, of course, is an intensifying syllable, and the Dovan part essentially means deep, and it also means world. So literally, Anuvan means something like the very deep world, or the very deep space, or the very deep aspect of the world. I often like to describe Anoven as a deepening of this reality. I come to that conclusion from my reading of different bits of poetry in the Welsh Bardic tradition, particularly in the medieval period. It appears as if Anoven is used as a description of a, a deeper dimension in this world, if you like, that it's still accessible to the bards. Awen stems from Anoven and fills the bard, yeah. So Anoven there, of course, is mainly described in stories such as the first part of the first branch of the Mabinogi, where Poish journeys to Anoven, and Anoven appears to have a king, and there are also adjacent 
territories within Anoven with different kings, but essentially it appears to be one realm. So this is an excerpt from Prethi Anoven, The Spoils of Anoven. This is a translation by John Cook in that excellent book, The Celtic Heroic Age. The Spoils of Anoven is probably a poem from around a thousand years ago. It's difficult to date it exactly. It's quite likely that whoever the poet was, was intentionally using archaic words to make the poem sound old and sound antiquated, yeah, to give it more gravitas and authority. But anyway, this is one section from the beginning of the poem. Gwair's prison was prepared in the she stronghold, literally rendered in the original Welsh as Caer Sidi, or Caer Sidi. Now, it would be fair enough to ask ourselves, why is there an old Irish word in a medieval Welsh poem? Because the word there, Caer Sidi, you can see the D is still there. Caer Sidi, Caer Sidi. That suggests to me, and it does to other people too, that it's a borrowing of the old Irish, seethe. That means that seethe was probably borrowed into the Welsh tradition perhaps over a thousand years ago. What we have here is a Welsh poet who's using an Irish word for the other world and using it essentially to describe the Welsh of the world, which, as we shall see, is slightly different. The poem Prethe Anovn, The Spoils of Anovn, it goes on to mention many different names for Anovn. And each name is preceded by the word Caer, which essentially means stronghold or fortress. So, for example, another name for Anovn given in the poem is Caer Vedwid, which might mean the, uh, the fort or the stronghold of the drunkards or the place or the stronghold where you go and get drunk. Yeah? But the more interesting name there, of course, is Caer Sidi, and it's used more than once in the poem. Gwair's prison was prepared uh, in the Shi stronghold in Caer Sidi, according to the tale of Puyll and Prederi. So here we have a reference to the four branches of the Mabinogi. Perhaps not the same version of the four branches that we have, but probably something quite similar. According to the tale of Puyll and Prederi, none before him went into it. So none before Gwair was imprisoned in the she or the seethe stronghold in Caer Sidi. The heavy blue chain held the faithful youth, and for the spoils of Anoven he sang shrilly, and until judgment he will persist as an imploring bard. So it's as if Gwair is imprisoned in Anoven, in the Welsh of the world, which is here given the name Caer Sidi, and it's as if he is going to sing there over the great treasures, the great spoils of the other world. He's going to sing shrilly. And until the end of time, until Judgment Day, he will be there as an imploring bard. Three fullnesses of Prydwen we went into it, except seven, none rose from Caer Sidi. So that's a, a reference to the backstory of this poem which is essentially that three full shiploads of Prydwen, 
and Prydwen is King Arthur's ship in Welsh tradition. So three full loads of King Arthur's ship Prydwen went into the other world, into Anoven, except seven, none rose from Caer Sidi. So even though three full shiploads of Prydwen went into the other world, only seven returned. There's a whole other conversation that we can have about what that exactly means. But for our purposes here today, what I'm essentially pointing out is that Caer Sidi is another word for the Welsh of the world now, Anoven, and that's a borrowing from the Irish. Now, it's unclear if the Welsh poet actually understood what Sidd meant. Maybe it was something that the poet only half heard or only half understood. But it's interesting nonetheless that the Welsh poet acknowledged that the Irish word for the other world or one of the old Irish words for the other world was seethe. So in the borrowing, there is evidence of um, an understanding. The Welsh poet understanding the Irish concept and borrowing it for their own purposes. It might suggest that at this time the Welsh poet considered the Irish of the world to be identical with their own. But Patrick Sims Williams goes on to argue that in reality they were actually probably different types of other world. Although the Irish Seath and the Welsh Anoven are both basically chthonic of the worlds, chthonic essentially means underground, below or within the earth. Although the Irish Seath and the Welsh Anoven are both basically underground, other worlds, there is an important difference between them. Anoven seems to be a single realm which can be entered from many places on earth and sea. Anoven was a single kingdom divided, sorry I'm missing a D there, Anoven was a single kingdom divided into separate sub-kingdoms and dominated with opposition by a king claiming overlordship, a fair reflection of medieval Welsh politics. What he's talking about there of course is in the first branch of the Mabinogi, Araun is described as the king of Anoven, but there is another king of Anoven in a sub-territory, if you like, known as Havgan, who is fighting against him. So Araun as the overlord, Havgan as a regional king who is in conflict with him. Now that's interesting because, as Patrick Sims Williams points out, it's actually an accurate description of uh, Welsh society, the medieval period, where there would often be uh, an overking, uh, one king who stood above the other regional chieftains and kings, who claimed power uh, and dominion over them. And sometimes these regional chieftains and kings or princes would fight back and try and uh, gain some control over their own territories. So there we see clearly how the notion of aristocracy is projected onto the other world. How the Welsh described their own native other world in terms that were familiar and comfortable to them. They described Anoven in terms of an aristocracy, something that they were familiar with. Now clearly this is um, a projection from Welsh society 
uh, onto the supernatural realm. They're trying to describe it in familiar terms that everybody can understand. And we could say the same thing about the Irish tradition also. Patrick Sims Williams goes on to say this. The Irish fairy mounds, or seether, by contrast, are independent kingdoms which enjoy more or less friendly relations with one another, like the mortal Tua, or territorial unit of land. It's also the name that, that's given to the people of that land, of early Irish law. They are not entrances to a single underground kingdom. So Patrick Sims Williams' argument is essentially that both the Irish and the Welsh describe their respective other worlds in terms that they are most familiar with. So in Ireland, the other world is described as uh, essentially something that's comparable to the Tua, this territorial unit of land. They are distinct and they are separate. Um, they have good relations, but they are essentially different places accessible through different seeth through different fairy mounds. Whereas in Wales, Anoven, the Welsh of the world, is seen as one territory, one kingdom, accessible through different places perhaps, but essentially with one overlord king and then lower or subject kings uh, in adjacent territories. So that's interesting and it's something that we should bear in mind when we try and back project both of these concepts onto what we might believe is an Iron Age Celtic otherworld. The differences in Welsh and Irish cultures suggests to me at least, and it does to Patrick Sims Williams as well, that the Celtic nations may have evolved different understandings of a generally similar otherworld. It's quite likely that the main similarity between all of the different Celtic otherworlds is that they were all considered to be chthonic or underground, yeah? Underworlds in many ways. Now, of course, it's only the Welsh of the world and the Irish of the world that survived as concepts into the medieval period. So it's understandable that we look to those sources uh, as a way of trying to understand what the earlier Celtic otherworld may have been like. But as Patrick Sims Williams points out, it's important that we don't oversimplify or overgeneralize. That each territory and each nation essentially has a distinct understanding of the other world and describes it to themselves in their own familiar terms. Normally the terms of aristocracy, of social power. Obviously in the four branches of the Mabinogi, for example, that's done for a very specific reason. Uh, it suggests that Puish is subordinate to Araun, that the mortal prince is subordinate to the otherworldly king. Of course, there are different sociological and philosophical implications to that uh, subordinate and dominant relationship. So what does that tell us in general? Well, I would say that what we have in the Irish and the Welsh traditions is a strong suggestion that the general Celtic of the world was seen as being underground somehow, or at least a deepening of this reality, but that it was not separate, that it was not an other world in the sense of another heaven, 
or in the classical sense of somewhere far removed. That it was somewhere that the Celts probably believed they had close access to. They may have also believed that they were actually present in the other world at different times in the year or different points in their lives. For example, in Ireland, Samhain is believed to be the time of year when the other world is available to us. It also suggests that the Celtic other world was almost always something that was strongly associated with the elite that it was something that the aristocracies of the Celtic nations really wanted to associate themselves closely with. Now, of course, that makes sense. We need only think of the later medieval idea of the divine right of kings, that later European aristocracies saw themselves uh, as specifically chosen by God, by the Christian God, to rule, to dominate. We find this across the world, of course. Uh, the elites essentially claiming that the supernatural beings have chosen them to be leaders, that they have a divine right to rule. It's no surprise that we find something similar in the Celtic cultures also. So I would say that it's pretty reasonable to assume that the Celtic cultures that are now lost to us, i.e. those of continental Europe, those of the Gauls, for example, or the Celtiberians in Spain, that those Celtic cultures were probably quite similar, that they conceived of the other world in terms uh, that were familiar to them and specifically aristocratic terms that were familiar to them, probably because the other world was considered a powerful, influential place, a powerful, influential aspect or deepening of this reality that the powerful and influential people wanted to be associated with. And I think it is important to distinguish this idea of aristocracy also from the other world or from the deep spiritual realm. There may well have been a time in the evolution of uh, the Indo-European cultures, when the aristocracy perhaps was not associated with the other world, where the other world was not conceived of as a, a place where kings and queens or divine kings and queens resided, that perhaps there was a more simple version of the other world much, much earlier in the evolution of Celtic culture and Indo-European culture and human culture in general. Just to review what we've been through, uh, essentially there is a Christian or classical notion of the other world, which obviously influences our idea of the other world, and that that is somehow misleading, because when we look at the Irish tradition, we find in medieval Irish texts the, the notion of seeth mounds, Neolithic mounds which give access to special spiritual spaces or kingdoms or realms or worlds that are obviously outside of time. In the Welsh tradition we have Anoven, where you can access this one realm through different points. Uh, but ultimately Anoven is essentially seen as a deepening of this world. So when we're talking about the Celtic other world, we should remember that there are nuances, 
that it's not just all one space and that the different regional cultures describe their own Celtic otherworlds in terms familiar to them. If you want to sign up for the free Taliesin Origins video course, then please visit the Celtic Source Facebook page where you can also find other similar bits of content I've created. Just go to Facebook and search for Celtic Source. And you can also watch the video versions of these podcasts, image and text slides included, by subscribing to the Celtic Source YouTube channel. Diolch yfawr.